you cannot discover lands already inhabited. You can steal those lands, you can colonize them, you can conquer them. You can't discover them unless you dehumanize the people who are already living there. So the fact that we refer to Columbus in textbooks, in monuments, in, in proclamations, we call Columbus the discoverer of America, reveals our bias, our implicit racial bias, which is that native peoples, people of color, aren't human. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for a meaningful conversation with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Today is a first for me. Today is a first for us. Today, we have a presidential candidate on the podcast. Nope. It's not Joe Biden. Hell no, it's not Donald Trump. And if I'm being completely honest with you, I'm much more excited about this presidential candidate than the aforementioned old white dudes. My guest today is Mark Charles. Mark Charles, a dual citizen of the United States and the Navajo Nation, is running as an independent candidate for president to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. Every president has a plan for their first 100 days in office. We all know this. Mark's plan is fascinating. Mark's 100-day plan includes striking the racist, sexist, and white supremacist language from the Constitution, truly abolishing slavery, and adding the words value life, these two words, value life, to the Constitution so that the beginning of the Constitution would read like this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, value life, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. You'll find out in our conversation why adding those two words, value life, means so much for a bigger and better vision for America. We go all over the place in this conversation, including toward the end, I asked him about something that people ask all the time about independent candidates. I asked him, isn't not voting for Biden actually a vote for Trump? You'll have to listen to our conversation to hear his fascinating answer. I loved every minute of our conversation. Mark gives so many dams, and I'm gonna shut up now. Enough jibber jabber from me. Let's get right into this great conversation. You can reach out to me anytime for whatever reason at hello let's give a damn.com. I'd love to hear from you. And here's my conversation with 2020 independent presidential candidate, Mark Charles. Here we go. Welcome Mark Charles to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, it's very good to be with you. If I could, I'd like to just introduce myself traditionally. So yate, Mark Charles Yenish, yeah. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as the people with our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say translated loosely, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother is which is the waters that flow together. 
My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsin Bekedineh. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Tuluchitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., which is the land of the Piscataway. Uh, so the Piscataway are the nation. They lived here. They hunted here. They farmed here. They fished here. They raised their families here. They buried their dead here. They were the people here long before this land was colonized, long before Columbus got lost at sea. And I want to acknowledge the Piscataway. I am honored and humbled to be living on these lands. And I'm grateful for their stewardship of these lands, these hundreds, even thousands of years. So the Piscataway are still very much here. And I want to make sure I honor them for being the host people of these lands. I love that so much, Mark. Thank you for introducing yourself that way. I, um, even here at the beginning, I want to point out how, how important you know, maybe certain people will not introduce themselves at length like that, but how important it is to at least know that and acknowledge it. I think you did you did a, a service to so many people that have gone before you by doing that out loud, right, for us here. But we should at least be, we should at least know about that, right? Because so many times we just, we, we live, we live on, we eat from, we drink from, we, we dominate places and we have no idea where the hell these people, places, and things have come from, right? And we just kind of aimlessly, you know, that's so much of the history of the United States is just aimlessly taking whatever we want, right? Without acknowledging that. Yeah. And I, I, I honor specifically, you know, native people for how how excellent they are at that. I recently um, interviewed my friend, uh, Charles Robinson, who is part of the Choctaw. Oh yeah. You know, Charles? I know Charles. Yeah. He's a good friend of mine. I love Charles and we got into that a little bit. I, you know, actually in this room where I'm sitting, we, he, you know, obviously if you know him, then you know about Atsuniki cigars and we sat around and smoked cigars with his kids. And we did an hour and a half conversation here in my little shed here. And I loved that. I loved the intentionality. We talked about, you know, his three cigars that they have out, you know, named after three of his kids, Nanaya, which means peace and Amaya, which means victory and Tashka, which means warrior, warrior spirit. And that intentionality is so, so important. So kind of here at the beginning, yeah. what, what have we lost or did, did, uh, did we never have that as, uh, and I say we, I'm Guatemalan, so I guess I'm not included in the we, and you're not included in the we because you were here before Europeans came, but did that ever get lost? Was that ever part of white European culture or, uh, or was that just never part of it? Uh, well, I... One of the challenges I think that a lot of Western European cultures have is they've, they've lost their sense of being indigenous to a, a space or to a land. And when you lose that connection to land, um, I think you're, it's easier to be a bit aimless. And so this is why, you know, here in the U.S., um, the, the immigrants, this nation of immigrants, undocumented immigrants, right? Who've come here mostly from, from Europe and they've been coming in since 1492. And they really don't know the history of this land. They have a doctrine of discovery, which is about exploitation and profit. And they came here and they're claiming this manifest destiny. They're trying to claim some piece of this land, but they've never actually asked for nor have they been given permission to be here. And so they live here like you might live in, in, a, um, in a hotel room mm. 
when I first started this work, I was living on our Navajo Nation and I was uh, living in a Hogan. We were six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road, no running water, no electricity, literally out in the middle of nowhere. And we moved out there to understand more about some of my ancestors and the more traditional Navajo culture, Navajo life. And we lived in this one room Hogan. It was my wife, my son, and I. And while we were there, I began wrestling with kind of American history. When we moved there, we were completely prepared to live off the grid. But what kind of caught us by surprise was how intensely marginalized we felt. Like moving there felt like we moved there from Denver, Colorado, and it felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. Mm. We quickly realized that the only non-group of, the only group of non-natives you usually see on an Indian reservation are the people who come to give you charity, are the people who come to take your picture. No one really comes to just get to know you as a person and talk to you as another human being. And so we were experiencing that, and that kind of slapped me in the face when we moved there. I, I wasn't expecting to feel that marginalized. And as we were there, I was learning about the doctrine of discovery. I was experiencing this intense marginalization of my people. I was seeing the historical trauma from the boarding schools and from the removal in our communities. I was you know, observing the, the drug abuse and the alcohol abuse and the broken families and all the stuff that comes along with that history. And I was learning about the doctrine of discovery and what really had been happening throughout our nation's history. And the longer I was there that I found I was becoming, and this is even in the first few years, right? I just found myself becoming very angry. Mm. And I was trying to sort through these emotions. I was, I was actually talking with some friends of mine who are not native living off the reservation. We were talking on the phone or over email because again, they weren't coming to the, to the Navajo nation. And I was trying to talk about what we were experiencing. And every time we would start talking about it, I could feel this kind of emotion come up and soon I have to hang up the phone so I wouldn't start yelling at my friends. So I learned how to kind of temper myself. I, I would kind of remove myself from the, from the, the situation. I talk about things like I read it in the newspaper. When I did that, I found I could talk longer, stay engaged in the conversation longer, keep my emotions more in check. But the longer I was in the conversation, the more my friends would get defensive. It wasn't my family that did that to you. It wasn't my people who did those things. And soon they would hang up the phone or drop out of the call. And we could never really get to a, a settled point in the dialogue. So one day I was writing a letter to them. This is like the 10th time I'm trying to get them to understand what I was experiencing living on the Navajo Nation. And in my letter, I said, living being native and living on the Navajo, on, on an Indian reservation in the middle of this country, it feels like our native community are this old grandmother who has a very large and very beautiful house. Hmm. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later and we're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most and that causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and simply says, thank you. Mm. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I wrote that and I'm like, that's it. That's how I'm feeling. I started sharing that with other people in our community, other natives, and several would come up and say, you know, I've lived here 
a long time, maybe even all my life, I've always struggled to articulate how it feels and you're hitting the, the nail on the head. I share that with non-natives and they come up and they say, what does it mean to say thank you? How does my family, my community, my city, my town, my church, my group of people, my nation express gratitude to the indigenous people of Turtle Island? See, now we're having a very different dialogue. Now, instead of discussing victim versus oppressor, now we're having this challenge, this discussion about what I think is the root of the problem, which is this reversal of roles. Where we have the United States of America, this nation that calls itself a nation of immigrants, right? And people who they've left their lands, they've left their homes, they've left everything they've known and understood, again, mostly in Europe, and they've come here seeking some sort of prosperity. They've never asked for, nor have they ever been given permission to be here. And so they live here like someone lives in a hotel room. They have no idea why that mountain sits over there. They have no idea why that river flows over there. They don't understand these lands. Meanwhile, you have native communities or indigenous to these lands, right? We have stories, creation stories that tell us why that mountain sits over there, why that river flows over there. And these stories exhort us. They teach us. They train us how to live here sustainably. And what I'm trying to do is we have this reversal of roles where we have 300 plus million undocumented immigrants living here like they own the place. And we have 6 million native peoples, indigenous to these lands, being treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. Mm. And so much of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get non-natives, especially white Americans, to understand that they are guests in someone else's house in some very real and practical ways. And I'm trying to persuade our native peoples that we are the host people of the land and we need to step more fully into our role as the host. And I think that's the challenge of what we're missing in the US is we have this reversal of roles. And if we can correct that, I think we'll actually live here in a much better way if we can learn how to do that. I think you're exactly right. And what I've seen so vividly is, and it, it corresponds with what you just shared, is that if people don't know their land, and if they don't know why they're here, and if they especially don't know that they're guests on this land, you will treat your land like shit. You will not treat it well. And we can see that with kind of rampant crony capitalism. We can see when the dollar is supreme and when it's all about just making money at the end of the day, then we will hurt our land, whether it's whether it's you know raising animals to to feed our huge meat consumption, you know, so we got to raise them quickly and rapidly and in an unhealthy way. The same thing with crops. And so now, because we've commodified people, we're if 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 we're if we're able to mentally and even physically commodify people, then we're definitely able to do that to these living beings, like you know, uh, animals and plants and other things like that. We can everything's just now a production line because we don't have those ties to the land and we don't understand our role yeah. as guests or hosts. And so I see that very vividly. And yeah, we could touch on that from yeah, food to climate, climate change, all of those things. Like it's very apparent that that white uh, you know, with white West white Americans with Western descendants uh don't understand that they are guests in this home called United States of America. Yeah. And and that's really it's trying to find that reversal of roles and, and even to, I might even say, help them find space here. Um, 
you know, which is you can't, you can't buy that space. You can't conquer that space. You really have to be given permission to be here. I love what the Lakota have done, you know, with Mount Rushmore Mm. where the United States stole that, stole Mount Rushmore. They stole that sacred mountain from the Lakota people. And then they, they carved some of their faces of this nation's most genocidal presence into the side of it. Later, they felt bad and they went back and they offered to pay the Lakota people for those, those hills. And the Lakota people basically said, these lands aren't for sale. You can't buy them. So there's, I think there's like a billion dollars sitting in a trust fund because the Lakota people refused to touch it. Wow. And they're trying to show this country, you, some things don't have a price. You can't just pay for it. And that's such a meaningful lesson. You know, Standing Rock, a few years ago, yep. hundreds of tribes, tens of thousands of Native peoples coming together in a unified voice based on the teaching of our elders, prayer and ceremony, telling this nation, this colonial nation, saying to them in a unified voice, you can't drink oil. Water is life. Like trying to give a different understanding. When, when you look at the history of the doctrine of discovery, these series of papal bulls written between 1452 and 1493, you know, they say things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. When you have this doctrine that literally helps, gives you a worldview that everything in nature, your environment, your, the world you live in exists for your exploitation and profit, whether it's other people, whether it's the environment, whether it's animals, whether it's plants, whether it's the habitat, all these things, they exist for your exploitation and profit. That absolutely shapes the way you live there. And so when you don't have a creation story, and it's interesting that this country, which, you know, calls itself a Christian nation, and most Europeans don't know their people's creation story. And so they co-op the one in the Bible. Mm. Most Americans co-op that creation story, especially Christian Americans. And, and then they say, this is my creation story. Now, if you read the creation story, even in the book of Genesis, it actually names the Tigris and, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, right? Creation stories are not textbooks. They're not science no. books. They're about relationship between creator, land, and people. Yeah. And how do you find your space in that? And so because most Americans find their creation story from the, the Bible— which is not even their creation story. It's the one they co-opted from the Jewish people, which they co-opted from the people living in that area. Um, this is why most Americans actually have such a strong connection and ties to Israel, right? Because that's the yeah. area where their creation story takes place. Um, and they view this land as land they can just exploit and profit from. You know, they steal mountains, they commit genocide, nothing cleansing against the people. They, uh, this is just, there's, there's one story. Yeah. There's many stories. One of the things I, I love to talk about with the environment, I just did a live stream on my campaign about the environment a few days ago on Saturday. And I was trying to reframe the entire environmental discussion we're having. 
And there's a, a documentary called Homelands. It profiles about three or four different native nations and their connections to their homelands, their indigenous lands. And one of the nations that it looks at is the Athabascan people living up in the Arctic Circle area. They're right around the root of the caribou. And every, every um, spring, the caribou migrate north to calf. And then in the fall, they migrate south to winter. And in the Athabascan creation story, that one of the leaders was, was telling the story on this documentary, he said, in our creation story, there's a piece of the human heart in the caribou and a piece of the caribou's heart in the human, creating this dependent relationship between both of us. And he said, whenever they head north, it doesn't matter how harsh our winter was. It doesn't matter how hungry or if we're starving, whatever. It doesn't matter. We never hunt the caribou when they head north. Mm. Because while we might eat better for a season or two, we're actually going to be creating our own demise. Yeah. Because we're breaking this relationship with the caribou. And he said it's interesting because most environmentalists applaud us, right? Way to go. Good job. You're not hunting the caribou. He said, but in the South, or in the summer, in the fall, I mean, we hunt them freely because we need their furs for the winters. We need their meat to, to be able to eat. Like we have a dependent, we, we respect the relationship. We honor their, their, you know, their bodies and their fur and are their, their, and we respect them, but we also realize we need them. And so, and they said, that's where we lose the environment the environmentalists, because they're appalled that we're actually hunting these animals. And it's like, no, we have to learn how to live in subsistence with them. We have to, our, and we have to learn how to live sustainably with them. Yeah. It's not in the West. There tends to be this notion of the environment is something you protect and, and, and isolate in like a preserve or in a museum or something are something you only exploit and profit from. There's not a deep understanding of how you live in harmony with that environment, using the resources while not wasting them, uh, being grateful and even, even returning thanks for the resources you're taking and, and living there respectfully. Not, you know, most indigenous cultures live at more of a subsistence level, right? Yeah. They live enough to survive. Yep. Western culture, which is based on consumerism yep. and, you know, we where and with technology, which allows you to produce more than you need. And so now we have this culture, this environment where we're exploiting, we're trying to maximize and we're, we define ourselves as consumers, which completely changes our relationship to the environment. And so I love that story. I love how it frames how indigenous cultures view the environment very different from Western people. And it's usually because we have creation stories. We have deep connections to the land, um, which most Western people, especially here in America, they don't have that. Nope. And even if they do, it's only a few generations where we have native peoples who've lived on these lands for hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah. Much deeper stories, much greater history in the land, which leads to a much greater respect for the environment. Yeah, it's funny, uh, not funny. It's great that you brought up this idea of the environment and the caribou and meat and all of that. So my, my family and I, just a little bit into my story, we became vegetarian uh, six years ago. Partly, one of the reasons was we didn't really, we didn't really eat a lot of meat anyway. 
And we just had this, yeah. we had this like massive burden to not partake in the mass, uh, uh, gr- you know, growth and consumption of meat in this country. And we, and my wife and I have yeah. often talked, like if we lived in a different place in a different time, would we be okay with eating meat? Or as, you know, as the way you just framed, like living in subsistence with like, we're all, we're, we're, we're all part of this thing. We're all, we're all part of making yeah. it happen. And I'm not taking advantage of you. You're not taking advantage of me. We need each other to move forward. If it was that type of an environment, we've had that conversation often. I don't know where I land mostly because I'm not sure I can actually, I can't see that actually happening because all I yeah. know is the mass production of, uh, you know, meat that isn't good for you, you know, so much of it. And it's, you know, the animals weren't treated well. Uh, the, the way it, the, the, the workers processing your meat aren't treated well. Uh, it's very unsanitary. Yeah. All of that. I can't even think about eating meat in this current environment that we live in, but what you just described where, you know, when you know the story of the land, when you know the who, what, when, where, and why of all that's going yeah. on, and you feel that's one of the things I've always admired about native culture and indigenous culture and the stories is that deep connection with not just not just other fellow humans, but with the animals, with the plants, with the trees, with the sun, with the moon. Like there's all it, it's not just, oh, there's the sun or, oh, there's a caribou. There's a connection there. And we yeah. know we know how to respect it knows how to respect us and we know how to respect it. And that feels like a healthier environment to, in my case, just for the sake of my, the example I just shared, like to eat meat in, like I could, I could probably eat meat and partake in that sort of an environment because it's a whole different ball game, you know, but I just can't like going to the grocery store, even getting quote unquote quality meat. Right. And really, you know, paying extra for a more quality piece of meat. Like I just can't even think of participating right now because of what we've made it here, you know, in this country. So um, that is interesting, like how differently you would treat all things environment and, and uh, yeah, just our surroundings if there was that next level of connection there. Yeah, and that's, that's something that Western culture has largely lost, and that's something where indigenous wisdom is so deeply tied to those stories of the land, those creation stories, those understandings of how do you live here sustainably long term. Um, and those are unfortunately are some of the stories that are, are can quickly be lost are more easily lost, especially with the colonization that's happened over the history um, and even recently. So, yeah, I think it's something we want to make sure we find a way to protect. Yeah. And so we, we don't lose that wisdom of how do we live here more sustainably. Yeah. Mark, you recently gave a TEDx talk, or I guess not recently, a couple of years ago now, gave a TEDx talk called We the People, the Three Most Misunderstood Words in U.S. History. Wonderful talk. Yes. First, I wholeheartedly agree, more than 100% agree. But let's dig into that for a little bit, because I think uh, we'll talk about some specific policies in your presidential run here in a second. But I think this, these three words, we the people, not truly meaning we the people, Right. Um, is is the crux? It's the basis on which you've done work for many many years. You know, you're not you you're not just popping out of you know the ground for a presidential run. Like you've been doing this work for many many years in so many different ways. So, talk to me about why we the people and all the people is such a big deal for you. Yeah, um, 
there's so many ways I could go with this. You know, when, when you look at this doctrine of discovery, that papal bulls I was talking about, written between 1452 and 1493, it's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. So this is the doctrine that let European nations colonize Africa, right? Because they didn't believe the people there were human. So they colonized it, they, they kidnapped them and brought them places around the world and enslaved them. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. My book, our book, Unselling Truth, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, the first sentence in the first chapter says, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. You can steal those lands, you can colonize them, you can conquer them. You can't discover them unless you dehumanize the people who are already living there. So the fact that we refer to Columbus in textbooks, in monuments, in, in proclamations, we call Columbus the discoverer of America, reveals our bias, our implicit racial bias, which is that Native peoples, people of color, aren't human. Now, this doctrine of discovery gets embedded into the foundations of the country. So our constitution, which begins with these, yeah, our, let me go back, our Declaration of Independence, which starts with the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. Well, if you keep reading the document, just a few lines later, about 30 lines down, towards the end, they actually refer to natives as merciless Indian savages. Hmm. Making it very clear, the only reason the founding fathers used that inclusive term, all men, and please notice it says men, not people, or women, all men are created equal, is because they had a very narrow definition of who is actually human. The Constitution, which begins with the words, we the people, a few lines later, Article 1, Section 2, the section defining who is and who is not a part of the union, who is and who is not covered by the Constitution, if you read Article 1, Section 2, the first thing you have to note is it never mentions women. Now, this is important because women couldn't vote, and if you um, read the entire Constitution, preamble to the 27th Amendment, you will find that there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns. Wow. 51 he, him, and his, who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the Constitution. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire Constitution. Second, Article 1, Section 2 specifically excludes natives. Third, it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. So in 1787, this literally left, if you take away women, take away natives, take away African people, that leaves white men, and it was actually white landowning men who could White landowning men, yeah. And so, you know, we don't think about this. The purpose of the Constitution is to protect white landowning men. And then, if you go even further into our Supreme Court case precedent, in 1823, we had a, a court case, Johnson versus McIntosh. It's two white men of European descent. They're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them got the land from a native tribe. The other one got the, said they got the same piece of land from the government. They want to know who owned it. The case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. That court, the John Marshall Court, had to decide the, the, what was the principle for land titles. Who had the right to sell the land, the tribe or the government? They ruled 
it was John Marshall who wrote the opinion that it was discovery that gave title to the land. And later, they basically argue that because natives are savages, we only have the right of occupancy to the land, while Europeans, who are fully human, have the right of discovery to the land, the fee title, so they're the true title holders. That case, with a few others in 1823, 1820s, and 30s, create the legal precedent for land titles. If you own a house, eventually your title goes back to being based on a doctrine, on this doctrine of discovery. That precedent and the doctrine of discovery get referenced by the court in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. In that TEDx talk, I won't give all the details away, but I go through the 2005 case pretty in depth helping people understand how it's one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions written in my lifetime, building basically the same argument in 2005 that John Marshall built in 1823. And that opinion in 2005 was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? And she's mm. the, the liberal voice of dissent on Trophy. this very Trophy. conservative-leaning yeah. court. And even she, in 2005, argues based on this doctrine of discovery. Why? Because when your land titles are based on this notion, this legal understanding that natives are savages, this makes white supremacy a bipartisan value. And so this is the challenge. You know, we, we've had one of the, the theme of my campaign is I want to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people. In 2016, President Obama was giving his final State of the Union, and he was acknowledging the deep divisiveness that he experienced during his time in office. He was lamenting it in some ways. And in his speech, he was calling for a new politics. We need to create a new politics, he said. And he referenced the Constitution. He, he said, we the people. Our Constitution begins with these three simple words. Words we've come to recognize mean all the people. Now that sounds beautiful. And he got a lot of applause for the line, but I'm sitting there listening to him in my house. I've studied American history. I've studied the Doctrine of Discovery. I've studied church history. And I'm like, when? When did we decide this? The founding fathers did not believe we the people meant all the people. Abraham Lincoln, who was one of a, he is a blatant white supremacist, read the Lincoln Douglas debates. And literally ethnically cleansed the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico to make way for the transcontinental railway, making him one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation. Abraham Lincoln did not believe we the people meant all the people. In the civil rights movement, right? Dr. King, he, he was talking about this vision, right? And he referred to, he referred to our founding documents as a blank check, right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. He's referring to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Now the Declaration of Independence calls native savages. The Constitution never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, comes to African district, this sort of person. The, the, the authors of those documents had no intention that those documents would ever include women, natives, 
are African Americans. Mm -hmm. They're not blank checks. They're blatantly white supremacist, racist, and sexist documents. So as good as the civil rights movement was, and I deeply respect Dr. King, it did not get us to we the people meaning all the people. In 2016, when President Trump ran for office, right, he ran on this notion of making America great again. Yeah. When she got the nomination, even in the primaries, Hillary Clinton responded by saying America's great already. Hmm. Right? At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama jumped into the fray. And he said, America's already pretty great. Then Cory Booker, African-American senator from New Jersey, he's on the main stage, he's endorsing Hillary Clinton. In his speech, he acknowledges that our declaration refers to natives as savages. He acknowledges our constitution excludes women. And he acknowledges the three-fifths compromise, which are all tremendously courageous. Most people, especially senators, don't acknowledge any of these flaws in our documents. He acknowledges all three, but he protects his political ambitions by telling the white landowning male base of the Democratic Party that these things do not detract from America's greatness. Hmm. In the general election, Hillary Clinton, again, debating Donald Trump, she not only says America's already great, she expands. She says America's great because America is good. Donald Trump stops, looks at her, and says, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. Mm-hmm. So if Donald Trump is running to make America great again, and Hillary says America's great already, our first black president agrees America's already pretty great, an up and coming senator says the racism, sexism, and white supremacy doesn't detract from our nation's greatness. The challenge is, is we thought 2016, the election was about racism versus anti-racism. Sure. It wasn't. What we were debating was, do we want Donald Trump to make America explicitly white supremacist, racist, and sexist again? Or do you want Hillary Clinton and the Democrats to work to keep our white supremacy, racism, and sexism implicit? Hmm. That was the debate we had in 2016. Right? If one says make America great again, the other says make America great already, they both agree our past, our history, our foundations are great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no, Hillary said yes. So the debate was, do we want to be explicit or implicitly racist and sexist? Now, it's funny because we voted to be implicitly racist and sexist, and the Electoral College gave us explicit. Yeah, sure. So this is the, this is the challenge is when you actually look at the two-party system, they both have a value for racism, sexism, and white supremacy. It's just explicit versus implicit. Yeah, so I, I like I, the U.S. versus Canada. Yeah, for sure. So I imagine. So I mean, people have probably already guessed. You know, it's it's been in the intro and all that. But you are running as the 2020 independent candidate for president of the United States, and I assume that you what you just laid out was either one of the main reasons or the main reason you're not hitching your wagon to any one of those two parties, um, and that's because one. And I I agree with you. 
there's you got you have zero pushback from me that they're both white supremacist parties. One is explicit, one is implicit. One is more covert about it, one hides it better. But at the end of the day, as you pointed out, one is protect, you know, there's there's one that caters to white landowning men, you know, democratic men, and one that caters to white landowning democratic or Republican men, right? And that's really that's really what's happening here. It, again, it comes out differently. I think Democrats are, you know, by and large, more um, inclusive, loving people. But when you get past all the rhetoric, which seems to be inclusive and loving, I mean, I lean, I'm, yeah. I, I lean left on, I, I, I don't like the word liberal, but for lack of a better term, I'm a progressive, I'm a liberal. But I don't let anybody, if I can help it, let them get away with calling me a liberal or some a leftist or whatever, because I don't, every single day I come up against things that I'm like, I don't want any part of what's going on over here because it's yeah. the same shit happening on both sides. One just does it in a kinder, more inclusive, more loving way, but it's the same thing happening at both ends. The left is supposed to be the, the, the party of tolerance and the party of inclusivity and the party of reparations and the party of this and the party of that. And none of that's happening. It just looks different. No. It just it just looks different. So I'll let you answer that. Is what you just laid out one of the main reasons why you're running as an independent? Yeah, I mean, I'm so when I decided to run, I decided I didn't want to run a protest campaign. I actually wanted to have a chance to win. And I uh, but I also wasn't willing to win at any cost. Like because of the things I'm I'm advocating for, the way I win is actually just as important, if not more important, than actually winning. If I win just by hitching my ride to white landowning men, I may get into office, but I'm never going to make the changes I want to make. Sure, right? I'm never going to deal with the foundations. And so when I dis was deciding where where and how to run, I mean, I had all this analysis. I looked closely at the 2016 election. Um, I had I had watched um, our, I studied our history throughout the foundations. I knew about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I knew that white supremacy was a bipartisan value, but I actually wanted a chance to win, and so I ran as an independent. And everyone's like, "Well, that's foolish. You're never going to win as an independent." No, I'm never going to win as a Democrat, right? Because what do the Democrats do? Well, the when you announce your campaign to run as a Democrat, right? Because I would, again, a lot, some of my policies appear to lean left. People will mistake me as a progressive a lot. Sure. Um, but to run in the Democratic Party, you make your announcement usually like 18 months out, maybe even a year, almost two years out from the actual election. And then you make a beeline for where? Iowa, New Hampshire. Yeah. Why? Well, they're the first primary state, the first caucus state. So Iowa is actually the sixth whitest state in the country, and New Hampshire is the fourth. Iowa has the highest percentage of private lands of any state in the nation. New Hampshire has the highest rate of home ownership. Iowa has a state law requiring them to be the first caucus state. New Hampshire has a state law requiring them to be the first primary state. Because the Democrats and the Republicans both follow those laws, they are literally making white landowning men the gatekeepers for presidential politics. And do you know when Iowa became the first caucus state? 1972. After the civil rights movement, mm, mm. after the assassination of Dr. King, 
after polls and voting booths were actually opened up more than ever in our nation's history to people of color. In 68, at the Democratic National Convention, there was actually some very loud, even violent protests. And so in 72, the Democrats decided that they were gonna start their first caucus in Iowa, Hmm. which again is like the fifth or sixth whitest state in the country. So the moment people of color get access to vote more freely and more openly, the Democratic Party decides, okay, we're going to run our presidential politics now through this very, very, very white state. Mm -hmm. So had I run as a Democrat, I definitely would have raised more money. I probably would have been in some of the debates, but I never would have been nominated. And we saw that, right? A year ago, the Democrats had the most diverse pool of candidates they've ever had. They had more women, more people of color, more members of LGBTQ than they've ever had. And we went for establishment. And well, what's interesting is early on in that primary, because Joe Biden was always kind of the favorite. And early on, when he was not very, I mean, he's not very dynamic anyway, but he really was not shining early on. And his wife, Jill, speaking in an interview said, well, your candidate, speaking to the other, the other people supporting other candidates, she said, your candidate may be better on any other issue, take healthcare, for example, than Joe is. But at the end of the day, you have to look at who's going to win the nomination. Hmm. Now, why? Well, because she knows very well the primary runs through where? Iowa and New Hampshire. She knows the, well, while the Democrats may have a more diverse group of people, the party is absolutely controlled by white landowning men. She knew that. And so she's like, you have to look at who's going to win. Who are going to be, it's going to be the white landowning male. So we have to support Joe. And that's exactly what happened throughout the fall. People of color started dropping out, losing their access to the debates. Kamala Harris dropped out. Cory Booker dropped out. Julian Costa dropped out. Meanwhile, Michael Bloomberg, who's the wealthiest white landowning male. Yeah. He's, and he's not even a Democrat. He decides to throw his hat in the ring. And what do the Democrats do? They change the rules for their access to debates, right? Because previously you needed to have a certain amount of fundraising. Well, Michael yeah. Bloomberg didn't fundraise. No. So he didn't have enough money to qualify. So they just removed that rule. Why? So another white landowning male can get onto the platform. And sure enough, by January, pretty much all the people of color were removed. And soon after the first two or three primaries and caucuses, every, all the women, all that diversity that we saw a year ago was removed from the stage. And we ended up with two white landowning men from the 1%. And we went with the whitest, most landowningest establishment male of them all, who was actually the most on... He's not very inspiring to say the least he definitely feels the most entitled to the position yeah but he's the least inspiring of everyone they had when you look at all the diversity they had on the stage a year ago all these very passionate people advocating for these very great visions universal basic income medicare for all all these other things they're talking about and the establishment wills it down to 
the most established white landowning male they could find. Um, so yeah, so the Democrats are that system. So had I run, I would have raised more money, been in some of the debates, but I would never been nominated. Yeah, sure. By running as an independent, I raise less money. I'm not in any of the debates, but you know what? It's August and I'm still in the race. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a greater chance right now of being president than Cory Booker does. I have a greater chance of being president than Michael Bloomberg does. I have a greater chance of being president than Kamala Harris does. Why? Because I ran as an independent. There's, now, I'm still a long shot. I'm not going to deny that for a moment. Sure. But I'm still in the race. Yeah. And that was the entire goal, was I actually wanted to run for president. I didn't want to be weeded out by white landowning men before I could even have the opportunity to do so. I wanted to ask this, I had this question sort of in my mind for later on in the conversation, but let me ask it now, since we're talking about this, there are a lot of people that are going to listen to this. And I mean, just, you know, this you're, you're on Twitter, you're on the internet. There are most Democrats, most, most, uh, kind of informed, not insane, uh, voters are saying, uh, you know, you've got to vote for Biden because a vote, not for Biden, you know, a vote for anyone else with Biden is a vote for Trump. Right. And which we all know, you know, on, on the one hand, you, you called it out a few minutes ago. That's not true because no matter what we vote for, who we vote for, the electoral college chooses, right? We, we the people voted for Hillary Clinton by a margin of 3 million votes, 2016. She's not the president today. And so it's not, so on the one hand, that's the first thing I say to those people is like, no, like we could, the, the reality is we could outvote Trump, you know, by 10 million votes in November and still he becomes the president for another four years. So that's, that's one thing. But what do you say to those people? If you have a chance right now to say, you know, to, to, to people listening to this conversation right now, and a lot of them have heard that already. Uh, yeah. They, they've heard you got to vote for Biden or else you're voting for Trump. What do you, yeah. what do you say to that? Our, our nation's two party system is designed to maintain the status quo. White supremacy is a bipartisan value. The difference between Trump and Biden is mostly personality, not really policy. You know, even right now, right, we've just come off of the, the murder, the lynching of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. We've had a national debate, mm-hmm. right, on, on institutionalized white supremacy, systemic racism. We had a huge debate on monuments from the Confederate national debate, Black Lives Matter, all this stuff. Now, a few weeks ago, um, President Trump, he's been advocating that we need to keep these Confederate monuments in place. We shouldn't move them at all. Joe Biden said, well, we should probably put them in a museum. Trump said we should look at banning some chokeholds. Biden said we should um, shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. They both agreed we should continue to honor George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all these other holders of enslaved people because they're our heroes. Sure. And so, again, there's not a whole lot of difference between the two. Last fall, our last, last winter, I think it was April or May, maybe April, the, the Mashpee Wampanoag, 
who had a reservation established by the Obama-Biden administration in Massachusetts. This was in the, towards the end of his second term in office. They established the reservation for the Mashpee Wampanoag in the state of Massachusetts. And in the fall of, during the pandemic, the, Obama, or the Trump administration disestablished those reservations, took them away. There was outcry. This isn't just, how can you do that? You know, I, I compared it to, it. it's like, um, you know, evicting someone from their rental apartment during a hurricane. You know, it's like, it's just, it's unjust, it's horrible timing, it's thoughtless, it's careless. Joe Biden responded and he um, talked about how the Obama administration actually established that reservation. Now, reservations are tricky because native tribes, almost every native tribe, we don't own our reservation lands. They're not our lands. They are lands held in trust for us by the federal government. We don't have rights to them. We don't have the, most of us don't have the fee title to our reservation lands. They're held in trust by the government. In his rebuke of the Trump administration, Joe Biden, he said one of the greatest responsibilities of the federal government of the president is to take land into trust on behalf of native nations it is one of the best ways that you can reestablish and protect your sovereignty. Wow. Okay. Now imagine if he said that to any other nation, right? Imagine he went over to Europe sure. and went to France. Say, Hey, French people, the best thing you can do rebuild your nation to nation relationship with the U S government is to let us hold your land and trust for you. Actually the best thing you can do for your own sovereignty. Now, those are words of war, correct? But he says that to native nations. Why? Because of the doctrine of discovery. Yeah. And so all he's saying essentially is Trump is a bad landlord. I'll be a good landlord but I'll still be a landlord. This won't actually be your land. Yeah. You won't have sovereignty over it. And just two weeks ago, or a month ago, the Supreme Court ruled in uh, a case many people were waiting for, McGirt versus Oklahoma, mm -hmm. deciding whether or not most of Eastern Oklahoma is a reservation or not. Oklahoma was arguing that because they've never treated it as a reservation, because it's been settled by white people, because the courts have basically called it not a reservation, and because how complex it would be to, to, to establish it and refer to it as a reservation now, that it should not be a reservation. And the Creek Nation was arguing, no, it's a reservation. And McGirt, who was leading the case, was arguing the same thing. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Creek Nation. They overturned the decision of the lower courts, and they ruled that the state of Oklahoma does not have the right to disestablish the reservation lands. They wrote that the, the courts don't have the right to disestablish reservation lands. They wrote that white settlement doesn't have the right to disestablish reservation lands. Right? These are all good things, correct? Yeah, yeah right. This should be a victory for the Creek Nation. And it was in many, in, in many ways. It was a, a victory. But I read the entire 42-page opinion because I don't trust the Supreme Court. And I found that numerous times throughout the opinion, 
they reiterated themselves over and over and over again. Any time the U.S. Congress decides to disestablish these lands and break this treaty, it can do so. Insane. All that has to do is muster the will. Now, any Native person knows the U.S. government breaks treaties with Native nations left and right. It's been doing it for hundreds of years. This is the first time I've actually read an opinion where the Supreme Court ruled that not only does this happen, but the Congress has the absolute right to break these treaties, and there's no one to hold them accountable. This is the problem. Yeah. And so Joe Biden is merely, he's saying Trump is a bad landlord, I'll be a good landlord. They're both landlords. Earlier on in the conversation, you referred, you, you, you shared this example in this letter that you wrote to your friends about the house, right? You guys are locked up yeah. in the top, right? So uh, I, before our conversation, I was thinking about the United States as a house with a really, really shaky, bad, faulty foundation. I have conversations all the time about just kind of restarting, <laughs> like restart the whole damn thing. We talk about United States as an experiment all the time, right? And when an experiment fails, which we have in so, so very many ways, just try again, like start over. And I get that it's complex and it's big and we're 350 million people. But why are people so uh, uh, opposed? They treat this document, right? They treat the constitution like it's immovable and unchangeable, even though there are dozens, a few dozen amendments, right? Uh, yeah. and we treat these things like they are, they, like they're sacred and we can't touch them and we can't change them. And we treat these systems and structures that we've spent hundreds of years building as untouchable and we can't change them. Right. Like we're, you know, you, you mentioned George Floyd and we've got, we've got, we've got Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, no knock warrants. We've got Rayshard Brooks. Those that's just the last like couple of months. Right. Yeah. We've got all these systems and we've got the we've got the for-profit prison system. We have the preschool to prison pipeline, which is very evident in all of our systems. We have an over, we have hundreds of thousands of kids in the foster care system, in the adoption system. We have horrible education, we have horrible community services, we have billions of dollars in, you know, billions and billions of dollars in police, uh, policing. So we've got all of these problems. We know they're a problem. Why is it? And I know that I'm super simplifying it, but I would love to hear kind of your first reaction. Why yeah. is it that we can't? restart the whole damn thing, like break it down, right? If a house is shaking, if you see the house to start falling yeah. apart, you don't, you know, there are certain fixes in my house that I can, you know, I can patch up a wall and fix a window and, you know, put some caulk here. But when the foundation is, is, is breaking, when the foundation isn't solid, you bring the house all the way down, you fix the foundation, you build the house back up because you can't build a nice house on a foundation that's going to fall eventually. And we're currently in yeah. so many ways falling. So why are people so red, like they're so opposed to these massive changes that we all know need to happen? I would say a few things. First of all, I would say change is scary, right? Even, even if it's good change, even if it's going from something that is unhelpful to something that's helpful, change is still scary. It's new, it's different, and it, it takes an adjustment. You get used to a dysfunctional way of doing things. You get used to, sure. to interacting or being treated a certain way. And change can be overwhelming, especially deep systemic change can be scary. I would say that's one of the reasons. The second, and one of the reasons I'm running right now in 2020 is because I believe I actually not only by running as an independent, is there a possibility of winning? 
But because of millennials and Gen Z, I could actually win. So in order to win, I need to convince a majority of Americans that we need systemic change, Mm. correct? Yes. Now we are still a white majority country and we still have foundations that favor white people. And so I'm not necessarily going to win through that majority. Like, right. This is why I didn't run as a Democrat because I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to convince these people, this demographic that this is a better way to go because right now it favors them. And I'll convince some of them, but I will not convince the majority, especially the more wealthy and the, the, you know, I'm not going to convince them. So I had to create a strategy that decentered whiteness and everything about the presidential race centers whiteness from not only from how you run, from um, the party system to where the primaries are, but the media and the money and everything is centers white landowning men. This is the most, um, this is the space that, I've never been in a space that centers white landowning men more than running for president. Hmm. And so um, to, to change that, I have to be able to go around it. So I have to find a way to get elected, not with the help of white landowning men, but in spite of white landowning men. I have to, I don't, I'm not trying to oppress white people, but I want to decenter them. I want to move them from the center. So I started my campaign by campaigning first and foremost to native peoples, because I truly believe if you want to govern these lands known that encompass Turtle Island, the most respectful place to begin your campaign is not to white landowning men in Iowa, New Hampshire, but to the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. Mm-hmm. So for six months, I campaigned in native nations, reservations, native communities all around the country for most of 2019. Then I began reaching out. And my plan was to start reaching out more to people of color, other people from the margins, African-Americans, Latinx, LGBTQ, IA2S plus, um, women, anyone who knows in a very real sense, they've learned at some point in their life that we, the people does not include them. Right now that I figured would be enough to get me some headway, but it's not going to put me into office. Right. Is that's not enough to get me in office. The group that gives me the numbers to get into office are millennials. Millennials are one of the most diverse and pluralistic generations we've ever had as a country. Yeah. And millennials are actually prime for systemic change. Why? Because they've been screwed economically, right? They were just going into college when the great recession started. We changed the way lending works. We jacked up prices. They came out of college with drowning in debt and there's no jobs, right? Now, just so they, they start the gig economy, they're driving for Uber to save an extra money. They're renting their, they're buying houses with their friends and renting them out on Airbnb to help pay the mortgage. Right. They're, they're yep. passive aggressively making the gig economy work for them so they can subsist and even have a little bit extra. And then just as they're beginning to catch up, just as they're about ready to like, okay, they're, they're getting some money tucked away. They're paying off their college debts. They're finally getting into a more secure job then the pandemic hits. Yeah. Right. And the, it just collapses the entire. So millennials have been screwed economically. 
not only are they drowning in debt, but they also are very aware of this national debt that we're adding trillions of dollars to every year. And so millennials are primed for systemic change, even regardless of race. There's a lot of white millennials just as much in debt as millennials of color and trying to find a way to make it work. So even across racial lines, I find millennials are open to systemic change. And I've been talking to millennials for five, seven, six, seven years now about the doctrine of discovery and laying these arguments out for them that, and their millennials are now the largest voting bloc in the country. They outnumber boomers. Yeah. And they're basically the first generation we've had in who knows how long that is not as prosperous as their parents were. So their prosperity is actually going backwards, not forward. They're not making more than their parents. They're making less. Yep. And so a year and a half ago, their, their parents, and, and they're terrified of becoming their parents, right? Yeah. Because millennials are very pluralistic. And, they're, and, so, and so you are very pluralistic. Your generation is very pluralistic. And your parents were like, they were at the Supreme Court fighting for the right to not bake cakes for people they theologically disagree with, right? And you, you millennials are just like, cool, now I or my friends can actually marry the people we love, right? It's like, yeah. you have this whole different yeah. worldview. And so, um, and you're the largest voting bloc. You surprised Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, I would argue, in 2016 was running a protest campaign. Everyone who knew anything about politics knew 2016 was Hillary's year. Yeah. Just like this year was, was Biden's year. Everyone knew it was Hillary's year. And Joe Biden, our Bernie Sanders is an independent. He's not a Democrat. He ran as a Democrat because he wanted to raise his voice. He wanted to be in the debate. He wanted to change the dialogue. Now, I don't think he was counting on the millennial support, which surprised him. And they actually upped his presence and actually gave him a chance to win. But again, the Democratic Party was never going to allow that to happen. And so millennials, you, you sense, you saw some of your power in 2016, but when Bernie dropped out, you kind of lost motivation. And so you're open to systemic change, you've been screwed by the system, you've been passive aggressively making things work, but you keep getting screwed over and over and over again. Now, a year and a half ago, 2018, I think it was, um, you got screwed again when Congress passed the tax reform bill, which just added another couple trillions of dollars to the national debt. However, your parents did something very shrewd, hmm. which is they lowered inheritance tax. So over the next 10 to 15 years, I don't have the stats, but I'm willing to bet right? That outside of the 1%, the majority of wealth in our nation belongs to boomers. Yeah. Lands, investments, yeah. property. As the boomers die off in the next 10 to 15 years, there's going to be a massive transfer of wealth from boomers down to millennials. And I, I freely tell millennials, once you get that wealth, once you get that inheritance, you absolutely will become your parents. Mm. And all of your desire for systemic change is going to go out the window because now you will need these racist and sexist and white supremacist siloed systems to support your wealth. Sure. 
this is what happened to boomers, right? They used to remember back in the fifties and sixties, they were, they were, you know, seventies, they were protesting the Vietnam war. They were like, they were going to be this radical generation. Yep. And now they're establishment. Why? Well, they got some money and the money is supported by these racist, sexist and white supremacist systems. So I'm running in 2020 because even now, Millennials, your primary asset, financial asset, is your debt. You don't own anything yet, most of you. Yeah. And so you're actually open to systemic change. So if I can convince you Hmm. to change the system, you actually have the voting power to do it. And right now your only two options are Joe Biden and Donald Trump. The only two other options. Yeah. And so my campaign is focusing very heavily on gearing our messaging to millennials and actually to Gen Z. Millennials are your passive aggressively changing systems to the gig economy. Yeah. Gen Z who doesn't know the world without high speed internet. Yeah. Right. If you're being screwed economically, Gen Z is being screwed environmentally. Yeah. You're passive aggressive. We can change this. We'll, we'll make it work somehow. Gen Z is like, oh, hell no. Yeah. Like they're, they're fighting for the right to vote at 16. They're like, they're, you know, buying up all of Trump's tickets in the Tulsa rally, you know? (laughs) And so, so millennials give me the numbers to get elected. Sure. Gen Z gives me the networking to go around the national media, which doesn't want to report about my campaign. Yeah. So Gen Z can actually, you know, I, it wasn't until literally the morning of the rally in Tulsa that the Trump campaign had any clue what Gen Z was doing to them. Yeah. They organized a global climate strike, right? A yeah. global climate strike yeah. without buying ad time on major networks. Nope. They don't know the world without high-speed internet. Social yeah. networking is the air they breathe. Yeah, I get on TikTok some of these days, and it's just like, it's insane how, you know, yeah. I, I'm a millennial, and I, I give a damn. I give lots of dams. But as you pointed out, so many, that are in, so many of my peers, it's very passive-aggressive. And Gen Z, they don't give a fuck. Like they are all in, like they don't, I mean, literally you see these kids get on in there, whether they're right or wrong, you get, you see these young people get on TikTok and they're, you know, pro Trump against Trump, like the whole thing. And that's something that my, even my age where we're out there doing stuff, yeah. we don't even do that. Like it's an insane yeah. level of confidence that again, results in starting, uh, you know, global climate strikes just from sitting out and, you know, getting, getting a photo taken of Greta and then it just spreads. And now kids are doing it in every country on the planet. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And, and that's where, so again, my whole goal is I'm not trying to oppress white landowning men. I'm not trying to, to mistreat them. I'm trying to decenter them and millennials and Gen Z actually give me the numbers and the networking ability to do that. One of the reasons I'm running in 2020, because we could actually, and now that the entire election's online, yeah, sure, that even levels the playing field even more, right? I mean, I've I've raised I've raised 
about $110,000, you know, which is a drop in the bucket to what these other campaigns are raising. But we have the potential and I'm, I'm working, my team is actually working, we're actually on TikTok, you know, we're on Instagram, we're trying very hard to, to engage with millennial yeah. and Gen Z because we realize once, if we can just get a spark yep. going there, this whole election could change overnight. Yeah. Without spending, I, I just read the other day, Joe Biden's planning a $280 million ad buy September and October. Insane. Um, Donald Trump's planning a $150 million ad buy. Yeah, those, I, I cannot compete with them if it comes down to how much money I can spend on ads. But if I can capture the imagination of millennials and Gen Z, this, that, that's worth even more than what they're spending on their ads because of the networking ability and the numbers that can come to the table very, very, very quickly. So millennials and Gen Z are a very core part of our strategy for our campaign. Mark, I really hope that some miracles happen for you and your team in the next few days and weeks, because I believe the American people uh, need to know about you and they need to know about the conversations that are happening around your campaign. Because I feel like, I mean, I saw my, uh, I saw my group and I say that my peers and stuff, like we've always, we're always looking for, um, and maybe not me specifically, but my people, we're always looking for the angsty, uh, go against the grain candidate, right? I remember a day, a couple election cycles ago, when I was like really intrigued by Ron Paul. I think he's, I think he's so terrible in so many ways now, but like what I, what I loved about him was that kind of Bernie Sanders, like angsty, like, I don't, I don't want to be, yeah. they didn't want to be the establishment, Joe Biden or Trump or anyone or the Hillary Clinton. They wanted to go against it. So we're looking for that, uh, yeah, that person that's going to say, no, I don't want to be a part of that. Oh, I've only raised $110,000, but we have the, we still have the possibility to do that. That's what my, even, yeah, that's what my group millennials and younger than me love. Like we love that story, yeah. that underdog story, uh, because we don't really want to be, a, I mean, I, I, all of my friends, all of them save maybe two or three that are in my close group. The two or three really want to vote for Biden. The rest of us yeah. are like, well, we just basically don't want Trump to get in. And we're kind of even voting for, you know, when we talk about Biden, like we're talking about, like, if, if we cast a vote for Biden, we're not actually voting for that guy because he's like losing it. We're voting for whoever his VP is because he's literally losing it in so many different ways. And that doesn't feel right. And so many of us don't want to yeah. go that direction. So you're offering uh, a really solid alternative. Our, our campaign video. You know, 14 months ago, I launched my campaign by releasing a nine-minute announcement it's video. Wonderful. Goes into depth on the doctrine of discovery. Goes into depth on my vision of building a nation where we the people means all the people. Goes into depth on my call for a truth and conciliation commission. Nine minutes. And to this day, 14 months later, that video is one of our best campaign tools. It's still getting thousands of views a, a month. It's it's getting shared a lot. It's it's you know, and I get emails regularly from people literally saying to me, I just watched your video and I'm in tears. Yeah. I've never had hope for our country before and you're giving it to me. Yeah. You know, when I'm running against the most divisive candidate from the GOP that they've run in decades. Yeah. And I'm running against the most uninspiring candidate the Democrats have run in a very, very, very long time. People are... The, the level of frustration in this campaign is 
so high. And I get people emailing me all the time, watching my video and saying like, why have I never heard of you? Like, how can your message not be getting more media attention? Yeah. Because you're so right on with what's going on. And, you know, I, it's been, I mean, I could write an entire book on how blatant the media is biased against native third-party candidates. Um, you know, they've literally written me out of stories. They've completely ignored me. It's been, I mean, it's been, I could definitely write a book about that, but, but what it communicates to people is if I can get people to vote for vision instead of establishment, if I can get people to, to vote for, for change instead of status quo, you know, we can actually do this. This is, I'm, I'm still in the race because I still think this is possible. Yes, I admit with every passing day, the odds get a little bit longer, but I still believe this is possible. And I absolutely believe I have the best vision of any candidate out there. I absolutely believe I have the best ideas for addressing the crises our nation is in on so many levels. And so this is why we're continuing to press on in our campaign. I love it. Well, hopefully this conversation will result in a few more donors and a few more social media followers and a few more people sharing the campaign video, which I, I watched a while back and I recently watched it again. It is, um, it is to, to say the very least, it's inspiring because people don't like to, people don't like bullshit and they can smell it a mile away. And what we're getting from the establishment uh, 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 candidates right now is just a bunch of bullshit. We know that, we know, we know because we've seen it so many times in the past that what they're feeding us, that most of what they're talking about isn't what they believe and isn't what they remotely intend on carrying out once they become the president. And it's just, it's again, and people fall for it so easily. But again, the people you're going after, millennials, Gen Z, we don't like bullshit. And so I'm, I'm grateful for your contribution to this campaign. And I do hope that it picks up speed. And um, Hopefully yeah. maybe we can have a second conversation. We didn't even get, dude, I had a whole list of things. We didn't get into any of your policies, but people can go to your website to watch the campaign video, learn more about you. Uh, give people your yeah. web address and your social media stuff so that people can get involved. Yeah. So Mark Charles 2020 is our website, 2020.com. Um, our announcement video is there. Our policy page is there. We have our ballot access page. If you click on ballot access, you can look at um, all the things we're doing to get on the ballot. We expect and are hoping that people in 41 states will have the ability to vote for us. We are hoping to be on the ballot in three to five states and have write-in access in 38 to 36 states. Um, so we're hoping 41 states people should be able to vote for us, which will give us access to about 450 votes in the electoral college. Um, and so we're working very hard right now to identify electors in the states of Texas, Utah. Um, we're doing uh, signature drives remotely in um, Tennessee and in Louisiana, trying to get um, on the ballots there. And so if you just go to our website, ballot access, click on the state you live in, you can see what we're doing in your state to try and get, um, get on the ballot there. Also, definitely people can donate to us. Um, you know, we've, we've raised about 110,000, which for an independent is not bad, but it's a drop in the bucket. And so we don't spend a lot of our money on advertising or polling because we can't win those games. Yeah. Uh, we are focusing on creating content and getting it out on social media so we can engage with millennials and Gen Z. 
that's that's our strategy right now. That's what we're trying to do. That's how we're trying to engage. And our team is growing. We've had our best uh, both in July, June and July were two of our best fund, our two best fundraising months of our entire campaign. And so we've been able to add more staff and and do some things we haven't been able to do before. So people can definitely donate to us. Um, but yeah, on social media, we're on TikTok, we are on Instagram, we are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We have a YouTube channel that which we use regularly. I do live streams probably three or four times a, a week. Um, we usually live stream onto our Facebook page, and then we uh, we um, post it onto our YouTube channel within 12 to 18 hours later. So you can see our archives on YouTube, but you can watch the actual live streams on on Facebook. And then so those are all of our campaign accounts. And then I have personal accounts. Um, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And so uh, you can find me there. Usually my, my username on social media for my personal is Wireless Hogan, which is the username I've used for a decade, for, yeah, over a decade. So W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N. And uh, you can find me on, on Instagram, on Twitter, and a few other places. I think Twitter, we don't have a campaign account. All of our campaign accounts are Mark Charles 2020. Yep. We don't have a campaign account on Twitter, but we do on Instagram, TikTok, um, Facebook, and YouTube. Perfect. Well, I will link to all of that, including your book uh, that you co that you co-authored and the website. All that will be in the show notes, everyone. And again, go get on board. Even if you don't ultimately jumping super on board with the vision, like go get to know Mark. I I, I love the conversation we've had. It. I mean, there's just so much here to dig into. Those policies are. Um, I love, I want to point out, I know we're over time. I want to let you go, but I, I want to point out that one thing I loved about your policy pages is that at the beginning, you, uh, you have like a, how do you have it? You have like a past, present and future kind of blocks. Yeah. So before you even talk about what the policy is, you give people handles for where, where, where we were, where we are presently and where we're going to go. Right. And that kind of yeah. gives people just super great context. Um, You've got your 100-day plan what, there. Go ahead. What we're trying to do with our policies is, you know, right now, policy, we've lost, let me see, now we've lost. Our nation has never had the ability to have discourse in a diversified environment politically. Yeah. Right? We've never been able to do that. It's so bad right now that we're in the midst of a global pandemic tens of millions of people unemployed and Congress can't even decide if they want to extend unemployment benefits. That's how broken our system is. And so policy has not, it's, it's not a discourse. It's not a debate. It's not a discussion. It's a bingo card. It's a checklist, right? And so you people put out their policy points. I'm for this. I'm for that. I'm for here. I'm for there. And then you match up your bingo card with their bingo card and you either love them or you hate them, but either way you can stop listening to them. Yeah. And what we're trying to do, I just did a live stream on this last Saturday, is we are trying to completely reframe the way we talk about policy, recognizing our nation has never been able to have public discourse with a diverse group of people. Even when they say, well, 50 years ago, Congress was able to compromise and work across the aisle. Yeah, 50 years ago, it was only white landowning men in Congress. Yeah. Of course, they worked across the aisle. Everyone there was a white supremacist. They all agreed they were the center. There was much less to debate, much less to to dig your heels in on. 
you know, today we have women, we have people of color and the white landowning men are like, oh, hell no. You're like, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to go there. We're not going to. And so this is where our nation, we, we realize as a campaign, our nation does not know how to have robust debate or discourse amongst a diverse population. Mm. And so rather than just laying out our bingo card on policy, this is what we stand here, what we stand, we are trying to reframe the dialogue and actually have a debate, actually have discourse about it. That's our goal. Because again, just like, just like we saw with president Obama, right? He, he got into office and then the only way he was able to get healthcare was to literally drive it down the Republicans throats, right? Trump got into office. And the only way to get his border wall was to drive it down the Democrats' throats. So while policy might get you into office, if you don't know how to have discourse and debate, you are unable to govern. Yes. And I want to govern. Yeah. I want to actually, you know, I, want to, I don't want to just drive something down the throats of my opponents. I want to actually govern and have discourse and debate and what's the best way to do move things forward. And so our first 100-day plan, you can see it on our blog, on our website, is to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our constitution. Yeah. And I, I literally believe we can do it. Yeah. So, but I want to have, so our, our whole policy debate now is not, just here's our check boxes. It's this is how we want to reframe the conversation so we can actually have a conversation. We want to identify what has gone wrong with this in the past and reframe it so that we can actually have a discussion or some discourse about it. That's amazing. Mark Charles, you're amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Much more to come, but again, thanks for this hour and a half. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. And yeah, I'd love to do this again. Please feel free to reach out to our campaign. That's the show today, friends. A huge thanks to Mark Charles for taking time out of his busy schedule to join me on the show. I'm so inspired by his vision for what America could be with lots of hard work and humility. I hope you've been inspired also. May the inspiration you're feeling right now turn into action today. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. It means the world to me. You can find out more about how you can support Mark Charles and you can find out more about the show and Let's Give a Damn in general by visiting letsgiveadam.fm right now. I created this show. Chad's Navely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family, and you can reach out to me anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Sending lots of love and peace and light to each one of you. Be well, keep giving a damn. Bye for now.